Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Jonathan Haskell. Jonathan is a professor of economics at Imperial College Business School at Imperial College London and an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. Along with his co-author, Stephen Westlake, his 2017 book, Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy, was one of the most important on economic policy in recent years and was rightly praised for its explanation of the growing importance of intangible assets in the modern economy. They've recently co-authored a new book entitled Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. I was a huge fan of Capitalism Without Capital, and I'm grateful to speak with Jonathan about his latest book and its key ideas and insights. Thank you so much for joining me. Sean, thank you so much for having me on. Greetings to you and your listeners from London, England. Capitalism Without Capital brought mainstream expression to the idea of the intangible economy and how it differed from our past understanding of physical assets such as plants and machinery. Let's start with the scene-setting question. What are intangible assets? How do they differ from physical assets? And why have they become so increasingly important in the modern economy? Yeah, thanks, Sean. And that gets at exactly the nub of what it is we're trying to observe here. Our, Our observation is the economy has changed. And in the old days, the economy was involved in mostly investing in and producing very tangible things. Companies were investing in buildings and plant and equipment and machines and vehicles and so on. What are they doing now? They're investing much more in the intangible assets, which you kindly mentioned in the introduction. So what do I mean by that? I mean, maybe the most immediate way is to think about the world's leading companies. If you look at the league table of world's leading companies, company number two, this is in the PWAC league tables, is Saudi Aramco. That's the Saudi state-owned oil and gas company. And their assets are assets that you know people who are interested in business and interested in the world will be very will be very familiar with. They are enormous diggers, huge oil wells, vast oil tankers, everything that's very tangible. The other companies in that list, of course, are Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, companies like that. And if you ask the question, how many diggers and how many oil rigs and how many oil tankers? do Apple and Microsoft and Google and so forth own? The answer is they don't own any at all. Their assets are entirely intangible. So what do we mean by that? They are things like the software would be an obvious one, the algorithm that uh, Google owns, uh, owns that tremendous knowledge that powers a lot of the search that we do. They'd also be intangible things like reputation as well. Apple's design would be another 
is uh, intangible asset as well. And then one thing which I think is rather understated but very important. That's the kind of the internal organization that companies have got. You know, when Tim Cook took over from Steve Jobs, it wasn't that Tim Cook was the main designer at Apple. He was a supply chain manager at Apple. And that extraordinary knowledge, which many companies have got of managing the supply chain and managing relationships within a company, we think that's a really important intangible asset as well. So it's that it's that synergy. It's those groups of intangible assets, which we think are very symptomatic of the way that the economy has changed. Your new book's subtitles suggest that something isn't quite working in the new world of intangible capital. What is it? Why does the intangible economy need fixing? So what we're worried about, Sean, is this. There's been this trend towards intangible assets. And, and as I say, people will be familiar with all the companies you know who I just mentioned. So hopefully that, that kind of brings that a little bit to life. But right around the time of the turn of the century, maybe the financial crisis, there was a slowdown in the pace of intangible investment. There had been rapid intangible investment, especially over the internet age, as companies had invested the software, changed their business processes, re-engineered you know, what they were doing. And those companies like Google and so forth you know, were emerging for the first time. But around the financial crisis, as I say, there was a bit of a slowdown in that sort of pace of change. So what we're worried about is that at least for many countries, we need to fix our institutions to make sure that, that that change that we've seen doesn't kind of run into the ground. Essentially, we think that many of the institutions we got are, we have are institutions which are fit for a tangible economy, and we need to reshape them to make them fit for the intangible economy. As you say, Jonathan, the book focuses on institutions, and we'll come to that point. But let me ask you about the world of ideas. How much of the problem is intellectual? That is to say, so much of the intellectual underpinnings of economic policymaking were conceived in an era in which physical assets were so important. Is there something of an incompatibility or at least an incompleteness between, say, the Washington consensus and the intangible economy? I think that's a very nice way of putting it, Sean. I'd say a couple of things. The first thing is, going back to the companies, is that of course, company accounts are pretty uninformative when it comes to intangible assets. If you look up the company accounts of Saudi Aramco, it's a pretty good enumeration of all the assets upon which that company is based. The company accounts of Apple and Microsoft have got their tangible assets. They've got some buildings. They've got a few computers. But they don't really know how to count the value of those relationships, those supply chain uh, um, you, you know, relationships and, and, and skills that they've built and so forth. So that's one aspect which makes policymakers kind of working in the dark. And so, um, especially when it comes, for example, to competition policy, policymakers look at competition policy through a tangible lens and maybe, I, I think, in some ways, aren't quite seeing that. So that, that's one aspect of it. I think the other aspect of it is we think that the intangible economy has got quite different properties to the tangible economy. And if I may, Sean, let, let me just mention a, a, a couple. One is, if you think about, I don't know, Uber's algorithm, so the sort of brilliant computer program that matches you with a potential driver, 
that's an algorithm which can be rolled out. You know, I'm I, I, I'm I'm sitting here in London uh, before the pandemic when we we all used to fly around a little bit. I could fly to I don't know San Francisco and go. In fact, to Stian Westlake and my co-author and I we went to Uber in an Uber. We were absolutely delighted about all of that. And that same software that got us to the airport in London got us from the San Francisco airport to the Uber office there. So one of the features of intangible assets is you can scale them up in a way that you can't with tangible assets. If you're a taxi company and you want to take some more people, you've got to order some more taxis. Uh, whereas if you've got the software, uh, you can uh, scale that software uh, across other places. That, 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 that's one uh, aspect of the intangible economy, which we think is different. The other aspect which we think is different, a similar S, is around synergies. Namely, if you put these intangible assets together, you get something which is much more than the sum of the parts. And if you'll forgive a very British example, Sean, but this is something hopefully your Canadian listeners will be um, super interested in and be familiar with. It is, of course, Britain's greatest innovation, the one in invention from Britain that everybody in the world knows about. And that, of course, is Harry Potter. And if you think about what Harry Potter is, it's an extraordinary bundle of yep, intangible assets. So the script, it's, uh, the, the book itself is an intangible asset, all the ideas you know, enumerated on the page. Put that together with these amazing software writers, and then you've got the mo- another intangible asset, and then you have the movie with all the sort of special effects. Put that together with some designers for the theater, and then you've got the theatrical production, which is you know, running all over the world. So, so again, if you add together all of those different intangible assets, the synergies between them, get you something more than the sum of the parts. So to your Washington consensus point, an economy with a lot of scale, uh, with, with a, lot of, a lot of scaling up and a lot of synergies is going to behave quite differently to a tangible economy. We're going to get some pretty big companies, right? You know, like the Ubers and like the Microsofts who are scaling up. We're going to get some very successful individuals like the people who own Harry Potter and uh, own the intellectual property rights and all that kind of thing. They're going, to be, they're going to become very wealthy. They're going to earn very large returns. And I think looking through, understanding things like the scaling up of big firms, understanding things like some of the aspects of the concentration of wealth, looking through that with a sort of intangible lens helps you think about some of the developments in our economy, which maybe if you didn't have that intangible lens, uh, you would think about it in a different way. That's terrific, Jonathan. Let me pick up some of the threads in your answer. There's a, a tendency to think and talk about the economy, at least in Canada, in a bifurcated way. We have traditional sectors and we have high-tech ones. First of all, is that a useful way to describe the economy in a world of intangible assets? And second, how can we further extend the productivity-enhancing benefits of the intangible economy to traditional sectors such as manufacturing, resource development, and agriculture? Yeah, Sean, great question. And if I can just tell a little anecdote, part of the reason I got into all of this is there was an initiative in the UK, a public sector initiative about 15 years ago to concentrate on creative industries. And we feel in the UK that we're very good at creative industries, right? The Beatles and Monty Python and, you know, Harry Potter and all those things, which Britain somehow feels we're rather good at. We're maybe less good at manufacturing and, um, I don't know, soccer and stuff like that. But we feel very good at all that. And I remember going to a meeting about the creative industries and they had a very long list at this meeting 
of the various industries. And Sean, you've just mentioned a few of the manufacturing services and all that kind of thing. We went through the list trying to figure out which was a creative industry and which wasn't a creative industry. And when we got, for example, to the automobile industry, the automobile, uh, that was decided that wasn't a creative industry, but the software industry was a creative industry. And I remember the representative from the automobile industry said, wait a, wait a moment, we're very creative in the automobile industry. We're designing new cars and we're engineering new engines to use less fuel and electricity, you know, go electric and all those kind of things. They were really, I, I remember the atmosphere in the room, Sean, they were really genuinely offended that they were not labeled as a creative industry. So to your question, if you label these industries in a very sort of conventional kind of way, agriculture, services, financial services, and this, that, and the other, you're going to fall into this trap of deciding that some are creative and some are not. What's much, much better, much more helpful is to go inside the industries and ask what activities are taking place in those industries. So in software, there's loads of creative stuff going on in software as people are writing computer games and all that kind of thing. In automobiles, there's loads of creative stuff going on in automobiles because they're writing a load of software. Actually, there's so much software in automobiles now, but they're doing R&D and they're trying to develop new ways to have electric cars and all that sort of thing. So I think the focus on the intangible activities in the industry is much more helpful in thinking about these different industries. And, and where that takes me, Sean, I think, is that to talk, and if you'll forgive me, about traditional industries and non-traditional industries is to make a bit of a mistake, actually, because if you start looking at the activities, what you find is, in inverted commas, the traditional industries, well, guess what? There's loads of intangible activity going on there as well. Now, it's true that in the, going back to what I was talking about, in the creative industries, possibly the less traditional industries, media, software, you know, those kinds of things, there's more creative activity as a, a, as a proportion because that's what people are doing. But the, the, the sort of bifurcation between the creative, non-creative, the traditional, non-traditional, I think intangible, thinking about intangibles, thinking about intangible activities kind of helps you think through all of that. So that's one thought on essentially trying to scrap this dreadful issue about you know the traditional and the non-traditional and so forth. I, I think the other thing which you mentioned was you know rolling out the productivity benefits to the other industries, and and that in some sense is why we're worried about the wrong institutions that I was mentioning earlier on. If, for example, we've got a financial system which isn't very good at lending against intangible assets, or if we've got a sort of government science policy system which isn't flexible enough to help firms who are trying to develop things besides traditional R&D, they're doing software and design, all that kind of thing. If we've got those somewhat inflexible systems, then we're not going to help the inverted commas traditional industries expand as they now want to do into intangibles. Uh, and that's why, as I say, uh, we think uh, we need a little bit of reform. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. 
in your observations about creativity and the role of creativity, it had me thinking about uh, the issue of intellectual property, which looms mm. large in both your books. Why is IP so important in a world of intangible assets? And if you'll forgive me, can you describe perhaps the broad contours of what an optimal IP policy framework might look like for the uh, intangible economy? I mean, IP is going to be incredibly important because, of course, when people invest in, an in, in a more intangible activity, it's much more likely that their IP you know, can be used by others. So, you know, going back to Saudi Aramco, when they invest in a ship and an oil tanker, unless somebody hijacks the oil tanker, it's their oil tanker. On the other hand, if you think about Apple, the incredible design that Apple do, within about 18 months of the issue of the iPhone, basically every phone looked like, you know, looked like the iPhone. So that was an example where the IP is going to be very important. The trouble with IP is we need to reach a sweet spot between a sort of ghastly trade-off, really. If if we say, all right, there's going to be no IP protection at all, then people, as I say, like these designers, are going to be very reluctant to spend a lot of money on the design because everybody can copy the design. If, on the other hand, we say we're going to have a lot of protection on the IP, then you get yourself into another set of difficulties. There might be an incentive to invest a lot in design, but then potentially there's lots of wasteful activity, lots of lawyers start getting involved, defending patents and all of that. That's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it, whilst we're on the sort of mobile phone analogy, is that many mobile phones, of course, require hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patents to get them working. So what you need is you need to combine all of those patents. Now, there are lots and lots of rights holders. If we make IP protection incredibly tight, it's just going to be really difficult to marshal the hundreds and hundreds of rights holders uh, that way. And then the economy is just going to be completely held up. So the, the IP is more important, and it's finding the sweet spot there, which we think is just a, is a real big challenge. And I think where we come to be a little bit more concrete, where we come down to, is we feel that increasingly a lot of intangible companies are using these IP rights in conjunction with each other. That's back to the synergies thing that I was talking about earlier on. So therefore, we feel tightening IP is not going to help us because that's going to take us on the wrong side. All that will happen is we'll just be involved in endless legal arguments as to whether I'm allowed to use your IP and Sean's allowed to use my IP and you know, you know all, that, all that kind of thing. So we feel, if anything, uh, we want to go slightly looser on the IP side uh, so that we're not mired in all, in all of those difficulties. It's a great example, Jonathan, of how the rise of the intangible economy is going to require some adjustments in conventional thinking about economic policymaking and the incentives of inherent in, in an IP model. Another issue that you raise in the book is that the rise of income inequality has broadly correlated with the rise of intangible assets. Is there something inherent to the intangible economy, including, for instance, its winner-take-all quality that makes it more prone to unequal distribution? And if so, Jonathan, what can policymakers do about that? I think it is exactly that. And in a sense, it goes back to the J.K. Rowling example I was having earlier on. If you, if you ask the question, why is J.K. Rowling so wealthy? Why is Bill Gates uh, so wealthy? 
it, it's not like the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and, and, and so on from the old days. It's not that they own a lot of oil wells or they own a lot of coal mines or they own a lot of steel works or they own a lot of railroads. They own these very valuable intangible assets. And again, you combine them together, you scale them all over the world, you can potentially become very wealthy. So indeed, it, it is precisely a winner-take-all style economy. And it's a winner-take-all style economy. It helps, I think, one understand it by explaining about the growth of these intangible assets and the way that they can be combined together. That then raises this tricky issue, as you say, about what does policy do? Do we just say, well, hats off to them. They had a series of really good ideas and good for them. This is terrific in the same way that Hollywood movie stars, you know, they're, they look great and, you know, they're blessed by God, you know, with, with, you know, with good looks and the ability to act and all that kind of thing. Do we say good for them? Uh, they, they can do that. And I think that's quite difficult, actually. I think, though, one thing is it changes one's mind to a certain extent when one looks at the income inequality. I'm not going to defend income inequality. Very few economists do. But going back to your Washington consensus view, I think in the old days, people looked at, as I say, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and all that and felt that they were just doing something deeply wrong, abusing their monopoly position, some sort of entrenched you know, monopoly and market dominance that was going against the interests of consumers. I think in the intangible world, it's much harder to say that, actually. There may be some abuse of uh, monopoly position going on, but given the properties of the types of assets upon which this wealth is now founded, that becomes a much more nuanced question, actually. So I think what we're calling for in the book is a sort of more nuanced approach to the inequalities that we see in modern societies. Jonathan, let me ask a related question. Uh, Canada, Britain, and other advanced economies have experienced job polarization over the last quarter century or so, whereby the relative share of mid-skilled jobs has declined. What are the labor market consequences of, a, of an economy of thoughts rather than an economy of things? Is there a risk that it further erodes the middle class in our societies? Yeah, so I, I think it's helpful to think about jobs in the following way. Everybody, you know, both here and in Canada, you know, and in North America in general, worries about good quality jobs. But I think we think that the job is the sort of wrong unit of analysis. Actually, jobs are a whole bundle of different tasks. So some jobs, like, for example, being an economist, involve the task of thinking hard, which frankly, it's not all that difficult, relative to really difficult jobs, which are waiting on tables, being nice to aggressive customers, you know, cleaning up the mess from, you know, not nice people who come into your restaurant and all that kind of thing. That's a job which requires a lot of quite difficult tasks and lots of people management and so forth. We haven't yet managed to find a machine which is going to wait, wait on tables and be nice to people and all that kind of thing. We still need people to do that. What we have done is we've managed to find machines which will do very routine types of tasks. And so the massive displacement of essentially routine factory workers from the factory um, is an element of all of that. So where does intangibles come in? Well, again, I think thinking about the synergies is quite helpful here. We're probably going to be able to develop machines, especially in an era of artificial intelligence, who can think their way, you know, through a number of tasks and, you know, help us shuffle around, uh, you know, items on a spreadsheet and all that kind of thing. All of that stuff can probably be automated. But 
putting together different thoughts, in other words, the combination of tasks, that may be too difficult for machines, right? And so coming up with smart ideas to serve customers better, coming up with ideas that that will manage the supply chain, that will, you know, inspire employees within an organization and all of that, that we can't do with machines, it seems to me. And in fact, in fact if anything, the machines that we do have, like computers and so forth, are going to help us do that because we've got the access to more information. We've got the access to how other people do it and so on. So I, I think we think that this is going to be you know, a difficult adjustment, as all these lab, labor market adjustments are. But in many ways, the machines taking over the routine labor, especially for developed countries, that's more or less done. So we've got to think about the next stage of getting people as I say, to be able to use the machines in a way that helps them combine these ideas in a good way. Looking to the future, the book makes the case that higher rates of growth aren't just good for the economy, but that they can contribute to a positive sum politics and greater social cohesion. Let me ask you a two-part question, Jonathan. First, what's the key insight here? What's the link between growth and a healthier political culture? And second, do you ultimately think that we can aspire to getting beyond 1.5% or 2% growth? Or is there something deeper and more structural holding us back? I think the growth and culture question is a really interesting question, which we sort of feel in our bones somehow that a stagnant economy is a zero-sum economy, essentially, right? A stagnant economy is going to be that if I manage you know, to get a subsidy for my university, unfortunately, you're going to get less money for your hospital and vice versa. So I think when it comes to public spending, for example, which is a lot of the arguments, you know, that we make about how to divide up the cake, a stagnant economy gives it that zero sum element and makes that very, very difficult. And from that, I think lots of very difficult issues follow nationalism and, you know, all all those kind of uh, uh, uncomfortable and non-growth enhancing cultural issues around there. That's one set of thoughts. A second set of thoughts on the beyond one and a half, two percent growth. We think that one of the things that intangibles does is, as I was mentioning earlier on, I come up with a good design, everybody else copies it. That makes money for Apple. It makes money for everybody else, actually, as well, as it turns out. So if we can generate more of these intangible ideas and more of them can diffuse through the economy, then we've got a chance of breaking out of this very low growth at the moment. So part of what we're saying, Sean, in the book is because the transition to the intangible economy has been held up, we've got, say, the wrong institutions, especially, for example, around financing, then growth is going to be held up because we're not going to get the full benefits of growth that the intangible economy can bring. Let me just wrap up with a final question. You've been so generous with your time. Do you want to just elaborate, Jonathan, on some of the institutional changes that you think are necessary to achieve that boost in in long-run economic growth for Canada, Britain, and other advanced economies? I'll mention a couple, Sean, if I may. One is around science policy, very difficult issue, certainly in the UK. What do you do about funding universities, funding research, and, and so on? Do you fund very broadly on kind of big, you know, moonshot programs and hope that 
everything, you know, that, that good things will happen? Or do you fund more nimbly and try to get those synergies going uh, in a way which needs a little bit of flexibility and so forth, which bureaucracies maybe aren't so good at? We think we need a little bit more on the nimble side. We think that science funding, and forgive me, this is a comment about the UK. I should know more about Canada. Science funding in the UK is a little bit regimented. There's lots of metrics and you know, forms you've got to fill out and all that kind of thing. Uh, and therefore, the chance of achieving those synergies of, as I say, bumping into a theatrical designer or bumping into a, uh, uh, into a script writer and who's going to use your software and all that kind of thing is less. So that's one set of issues. The other set of issues, and I'll just mention these, is around financing, which I said mentioned a little bit earlier on. Um, one of the difficulties in the intangible economy is that if I go to a bank with a building or with a vehicle, I can often secure a loan against that. If I go to a bank with a movie script or an idea for a marketing uh, uh, um, campaign or a design, banks aren't going to lend me against any of that. So we think we need some reforms in the financial system to make it easier for firms to go to the financial sector and raise the money that they need to start up the intangible businesses who are going to be the next Google, the next Apple, you know, the next Facebook, uh, and and take uh, all of those products to a new level. Well, for uh, policymakers thinking about navigating this new world, they'd be wise to read Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. Jonathan Haskell, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today at Hub Dialogues. Absolute pleasure, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening. <laughs>